Welcome to the August 2023 episode of Astrochem Coffee, brought to you by Astrochemistry Discussions. I'm your host, Brett McGuire, and today we'll be taking a whirlwind tour of what's been happening in the astrochemical literature this last month in the grab-and-go, a deeper look at the study of water in a planet-forming disk, and a deep examination of the formation of CO2 in interstellar ices in the double shot, and then a peek into the percolator to see what's bubbling up from the history books. Finally, we'll take a look at the chalkboard to see what's on the horizon for meetings and events. But first, let me tell you that today's cup of joe is an 8-ounce Newman's Own Organic Special Blend Medium Roast from a K-Cup. It's roasty, with a strong bouquet of coffee on the nose, no floral, chocolatey, fruity, or vanilla notes, and pairs well with drowsiness and morning malaise. A solid B-. This is the grab-and-go, because sometimes you just can't do more than skim the menu. I've got 14 quick-fire papers to put on your radar this month. First up, protostellar interferometric line survey of the Cygnus X region, Pills Cygnus, the role of the external environment in setting the chemistry of protostars, by Vandervolt et al., out now on archive to appear in A&A. This paper presents the full data set and analysis of the PILS, that is Protostellar Interferometric Line Survey observations, of 10 sources in the Cygnus X complex using the SMA. The observations cover the same frequency range as the ALMA PILS survey of IRAS 16293, that is 329 to 361 GHz, enabled by the wideband capabilities of the SMA swarm correlator. Maps and molecular inventories are presented and there is a discussion of the interplay between physical environment and chemical evolution. Next up, surface diffusion of carbon atoms as a driver of interstellar organic chemistry by Suge et al., appearing now on the archive. This experimental study looks at the thermodynamics of carbon atoms diffusing across the surface of an interstellar ice analog. They find that weakly bound carbon atoms begin diffusing across the surface above 22 Kelvin. Next up, we have oxygen-bearing organic molecules in Comet 67P's Dusty Coma, first evidence for abundant heterocycles, by Hani et al., appearing now in the archive and forthcoming in ANA. This work presents an analysis of the mass spectrometer measurements from the Rosetta spacecraft mission to Comet 67P. They report evidence for oxygen-bearing heterocyclic molecules from these data, particularly tetrahydrofuran. Number four, a 3mm molecular line survey toward the C-star envelope CIT6 by Yang et al. out on the archive and appearing in PASJ. This paper presents an unbiased spectral line survey of the carbon-rich circumstellar envelope CIT6 between 90 and 116 GHz using the Arizona Radio Observatory's 12-meter telescope. An analysis of the spectral lines is presented, as is the resulting molecular inventory, and the results are compared to those of IRC plus 10216. Number five, the chemical inventory of the inner regions of planet-forming disks, the JWST and MINES program, by Camp et al., out on the archive and appearing in Faraday Discussions. This paper presents the results of the MIRI Mid-IR Disk Survey Program on JWST, examining the chemical inventory of the inner disks of solar-type stars and brown dwarfs. An overview of the survey sample of disks is presented, as are the data reduction techniques and the methods used to model the observed molecular signal. 
Some spectra and preliminary results are then presented and compared to models. Number six, COCO, Complex Chemistry in Hot Cores with Alma, Selected Oxygen-Bearing Species by Chen et al., out on the archive and to appear in A&A. This paper presents a first look at early results from an ALMA program which is performing spectral line surveys of about two dozen hot core sources. Spectra from one of two spectral settings are analyzed toward 14 sources with data collected so far, examining the abundances of oxygen-bearing COMs including acetaldehyde, ethanol, dimethyl ether, methyl formate, glycol aldehyde, and ethylene glycol. Number seven, new prebiotic molecules in the interstellar medium from the reaction between vinyl alcohol and CN radical, unsupervised reaction mechanism discovery, accurate electronic structure calculations, and kinetic simulations from Bellotta et al. appearing in PCCP. This work presents a gas phase model and analysis of the barrierless reactions of both syn and anti-vinyl alcohol with CN radical. The most favored pathway leads to cyanoacetaldehyde, a molecule of potential prebiotic interest which has yet to be identified in space. Number 8. Physical Properties of Methanol Ice as a Function of Temperature, Density, Infrared Band Strengths, and Crystallization by Karaskosa et al. appearing on the archive. This is a combined experimental and computational study. The authors grow methanol ices under simulated interstellar conditions and measure the volumetric density, IR spectra, and IR band strengths at various deposition temperatures and during warm-up. They compare these results to those computed with models and suggest specific observations that could provide insight into the structure of these ices in the ISM. Number 9. Quantum Mechanical Modeling of the Grain Surface Formation of Acetaldehyde on Water-CO Dirty Ice Surfaces by Pereiro et al. on the archive to appear in Munras. This paper provides a new computational investigation of the formation of acetaldehyde on grain surfaces in the ISM. Although acetaldehyde is one of the most commonly observed COMs in space, many of the traditionally invoked grain surface pathways to its formation have come under scrutiny in recent years. This paper suggests that the reaction of methyl radical with CO in the ice in fact possesses a non-trivial reaction barrier, making this pathway unlikely to be a large contributor to this chemistry in space. Number 10. The interaction of H2S with H atoms on grain surfaces under molecular cloud conditions by Santos et al. in the archive to appear in ANA. Although H2S is thought to be efficiently formed on grain surfaces, it is yet to be detected in icy dust mantles through observations, suggesting perhaps an efficient destruction pathway as well. This paper presents an experimental investigation of the fate of H2S upon H-atom impact using both IR spectroscopy and mass spectrometry. They monitor the formation of H2S2 from this reaction, quantify the additional loss of H2S by desorption during the process, and discuss the astrochemical implications. Number 11. Investigating possible dipole-bound states of cyanopolyines, the case for the C5n- anion detected in interstellar space, by Jerosimic et al., appearing in ChemPhysChem. This paper presents a quantum chemical investigation probing whether the C5n- anion can possess dipole-bound excited states. These higher-lying states are proposed to be potentially critical in enabling the formation of many interstellar anions. The results indicate that C5n- does indeed possess two dipole-bound excited states. Number 12. The first detection of SiC2 in the interstellar medium, by Masalki et al., on the archive, to appear in ANA. 
This paper presents the first detection of the SIC2 molecule in an interstellar source. While somewhat commonly found in circumstellar envelopes of evolved stars, this species had not been previously identified outside these environments. Based on the observations, the authors suggest it is formed in shocked regions, where it is either directly released from grains or where silicon is sputtered from grains and subsequently reacts with acetylene. Number 13. Maps. Constraining Serendipitous Time Variability in Protoplanetary Disk Molecular Ion Emission by Wagoner et al. on the archive to appear in the Astrophysical Journal. This paper presents a search for time-variable chemical abundances of HCO plus in protoplanetary disks as a result of X-ray flaring from the protostar. The authors used data obtained as part of the MAPS Large Program with ALMA and examined five sources on a day-by-day basis to search for variability. Tentative indications of variability are found that are suggestive of such a process occurring. Number 14. Outflows from the youngest stars are mostly molecular, by Ray et al. appearing in Nature. The authors report observations of the jet outflow from the HH211 protostellar system. There has been much debate over whether these jets are primarily atomic, ionized, or molecular in nature. The backbone of the jet is too hot to be efficiently probed by millimeter wave observations, but these JWST observations indeed suggest that it is heavily molecular in content. And that's your grab and go for the month. We can, of course, only juggle so many cups. For a more complete list of papers, we recommend checking out the amazing lists maintained by David Woon at theastrochemist.org and the Astrochemical Newsletter. You can find links to these websites as well as each of the papers in this month's Grab and Go on our website at coffee.astrochem.net. Have a paper you think we should include in next month's edition? Shoot us an email with a link to the paper and a two to three sentence summary at coffee at astrochem.net. And now, a word from our sponsors. Today's program is brought to you by the new Black Hole Bomber, available exclusively at your neighborhood Starducks. They start with your roast of choice, then add two heaping tablespoons of ethically sourced fair trade activated charcoal. Available hot or iced, you can dress it up however you like, and its inky blackness will shine through it all. Pair it with one of their dark cherry biscotti for an extra treat in the morning. Hurry, this limited time offering won't be around forever. On this week's Double Shot, we have two exciting papers. First up, Water in the Terrestrial Planet Forming Zone of the PDS-70 Disc, by Parati et al., published in Nature. This Double Shot was written and provided by Julia Parati. The paper begins by setting the stage for the investigation, describing how water is expected to play a key role in the formation of terrestrial and sub-Neptune planets formed within the inner 10 AU of a protoplanetary disc. The origin of this water, whether it is actually formed in the inner disk or is instead transported in from the outer disk, is an open question. This study reports on the first direct observations of water vapor in the iconic planet-hosting disk PDS-70, the only system with a confirmed protoplanet presence. Just a quick but necessary introduction, the PDS-70 system is composed of an outer disk and an inner disk, separated by a very large gap, more than 54 AU, where the two nascent protoplanets reside. Terrestrial planets have not been detected, yet, in the inner disk of PDS-70. Around one of the two protoplanets, there is a circumplanetary disk where exomoons may be forming, rather exciting, 
Although PDS-70 is arguably the most studied system in the planet formation community until now, we are lacking high spectral resolution mid-infrared data. The paper briefly describes the details of the observations using the mid-infrared instrument, MIRI, mounted on the JWST, which provides spectral resolutions of a few thousand. The observations were part of the MIRI Mid-Infrared Disk Survey, or MINES program, a JWST-guaranteed time project. The methods and extended data section of the paper contain substantial details on the PDS system itself, as well as the observations, data reduction and calibration, and spectral fitting techniques. The paper presents the full spectrum in its first figure, then notes that in comparison to prior low-resolution Spitzer Space Telescope observations taken 15 years ago, there is a notable change in the flux, especially at longer wavelengths, that cannot be attributed to calibration or data reduction, and thus is indicative of temporal variation. The authors present and dismiss a number of options, ultimately suggesting that occulting material within an AU of the star is perhaps the most likely explanation. The paper then lists the molecular features contributing to the JWST MIRI spectrum of PDS-70, labeled in their first figure, starting with the analysis of the composition of the dust grains. Amorphous and crystalline silicates such as forsterite are identified, these detections confirm that a population of small, say micron-sized dust grains is present in the inner disk and that a fraction of the grains has been subjected to thermal processing, reflected in the phase transition from amorphous to crystalline. The authors briefly describe the model used to analyze the dust continuum and conclude that most of the dust emission probes upper disk layers as expected. The best fit model is then reported in a subsequent figure. After a digression on the dust features, the paper dives into the gaseous reservoir and in particular on the water vapor detection, the first one in a disk hosting two or perhaps more protoplanets. Water lines are visible throughout the spectrum that is presented. The paper focuses on the brightest row vibrational lines of the bending mode of ortho and para water, around 7 microns, which probe the inner region closer to the star. A zoom in onto these lines is then presented in their figure 3. The paper continues with the description of the spectral fitting tool, which consists of producing a synthetic spectrum of water assuming a zero-dimensional slab of gas in local thermodynamic equilibrium at a single excitation temperature. Apart from the temperature, the model has two more parameters, column density and emitting area. The authors specify that the latter does not have to exclusively be interpreted as a disk radius, as it could also correspond to an annulus within the same area. The water lines in the JWST MIRI spectrum are best reproduced with a slab of gas at 600 Kelvin, a column density of a few times 10 to the 18th, and an emitting area with radius well inside 1 AU. The authors note that water vapor is not the only detected species in the inner disk of PDS-70. Two molecular hydrogen lines and carbon monoxide are also identified, and the latter is best modeled with a slab of cooler gas, about 200 Kelvin. These detections demonstrate that the inner disk of PDS-70 is not devoid of gas, as previously expected, but that it has maintained to some degree the physical and chemical conditions of dust-rich inner disks, despite the presence of a notably large gap. The reader is guided to the methods for more details on the origin of water. Here, the authors discuss the possible scenarios for the presence of water vapor. One possibility would be water formed in situ in the inner disk from oxygen-rich gas transported in from the outer disk. Water molecules can act as UV absorbers together with small dust and shield the water reservoir from photodissociation. Another possibility would be transport of small water-rich dust particles from the outer disk to the inner disk coupled with the gas. 
Both scenarios would sustain the inner disc of PDS70 from dissipation. First scenario is in agreement with the reported column density and the CO2 detection, but at the same time, the second scenario is also in agreement with this data, and the authors indicate that more is to come on this topic. The last two paragraphs place the detection of water in PDS70 into a larger context. Here, the authors offer a comparison between waterline luminosity in PDS70 and a sample of 63 disks observed with the Spitzer infrared spectrograph about two decades ago. The waterline luminosity is plotted as a function of mid-infrared spectral index, which has been used as a diagnostic for the presence and size of the large innermost disk cavities. PDS70 falls in the parameter space of dust-depleted inner disks, as expected, where only upper limits have been reported thus far due to the low sensitivity of Spitzer. The authors conclude stressing that the community now has an instrument, MIRI MRS, that can detect very weak, less than or about equal to 5 millijansky water lines in the innermost regions of faint disks with large gaps, and hence that the terrestrial planet-forming zone of dust-depleted inner disks are possibly not as dry as previously thought. PDS-70 has been observed with all instruments of JWST at this point, and spoiler, we will hear much more from this system in the coming months, not only concerning the inner disk, but especially observations of the protoplanets, so keep an eye out. Our second shot of the double shot is cracking the puzzle of CO2 formation on interstellar ices, quantum chemical and kinetic study of the CO plus OH yielding CO2 plus H reaction by Molpiceris et al. out now in the archive and forthcoming in A and A. This double shot was written and provided by Tanya Lamberts. The paper introduces the fact that several small molecules are present in the ISM in the small solid state. For instance, water is thought to be formed on the surfaces of dust grains and carbon monoxide is frozen out at a later stage. The molecule that the paper deals with in particular, carbon dioxide, is introduced to be possibly formed via a number of previously postulated reactions, one of these reactions being the bimolecular CO plus OH pathway leading to CO2 and hydrogen directly, which is assumed to have a minimal reaction barrier. Uh, This might sound like a lot of chemistry, and it is, but... We promise that we'll talk you through all the steps in a way that anyone who's ever been on an outdoor hike will be able to relate to. The authors explain that in the solid state, in ices, the reaction seems to be efficient, yet in the gas phase, the reported rate constants are low. Moreover, by physical chemical intuition, one would expect the reaction to be hampered at the HOCO, HOCO intermediate, in the chemical pathway. These discrepancies are sought to be resolved by means of quantum chemical calculations. The methodology outlined in the paper is twofold. On the one hand, quantum chemical calculations are performed to obtain the energetic landscape of the reaction, and on the other hand, an extensive kinetic analysis is performed to obtain reaction rate constants. Now, please excuse us for some uh, detailed lingo here, but for those that are interested, a dual-level approach is used for the energetics with density functional theory and DLPNO coupled cluster refinement and RRKM theory is employed to be able to account for different non-thermal energy dissipation and distribution scenarios. The paper continues to describe the ice clusters that were created and used as interstellar icy grain analogs. As a result of the very different interactions between molecules, the obtained CO cluster is more spherical, with low binding energy sites for both reactants. Just as a reminder, the reactants that we're working with are CO and OH. 
The water cluster, on the other hand, allows for much stronger interaction and deep sites. To be able to study the reactivity itself, the authors choose to keep the CO reactant molecule on one particular binding site, and testing various effects on the reaction pathway is done by changing the position and energy of the incoming OH radical. The results are described by first outlining the so-called potential energy surface, in other words, the energetic landscape, on water and then on carbon monoxide ice. It is important to realize that the reaction as it is usually portrayed, CO plus OH yielding CO2 plus H, is in fact the result of a four-step reaction pathway. Let's explain this by using a mountain landscape as an analog. First, CO and OH see each other at opposing mountaintops, and they approach each other by sliding into the nearest valley where they can meet. This allows for a new bond formation, which can only occur if the reactants together cross a mountain pass and relax toward a new valley. In this case, that would be the formation of the HOCO intermediate, H-O-C-O, which itself isomerizes as well. To be able to form CO2, another mountain pass needs to be crossed. In fact, it is the highest one on our little hike. The paper outlines the difference between the reactions taking place on water and carbon monoxide, where the interaction of the reactants on water is stronger than that when they react and interact on carbon monoxide. I guess you can think of that as hiking on a muddy trail versus a a rocky trail. In one case, your shoes can get stuck, and in the other case, you can step as you like. However, as you can imagine, any of you who have ever walked in a hilly landscape, walking uphill actually requires some energy input. We as humans can either have a full stomach, internal energy, or have granola bars available, external energy. The same is true for atoms and molecules. In that case, internal energy would be the result of a previous reaction having been exothermic, and external energy could come from a radiation source. This is discussed in the context of microcanonical rate constant calculations. Without going into details uh, here, the authors convincingly show that the direct formation of CO2 and H from the reaction of CO plus OH is actually unlikely, even when external energy sources are invoked as a result of a mismatch between thermalization and reaction timescales. In other words, one would expect the HOCO intermediate to be the stable product, and then CO2 formation is suggested to occur through another subsequent reaction involving a hydrogen extraction from HOCO. In other words, you take the HOCO radical, you add hydrogen atom, yielding H2 plus CO2. In most experiments, indeed additional radicals such as the hydrogen atom were present on the surface, allowing the conversion of HOCO into CO2. Finally, the paper discusses and elaborates on the differences between HOCO formation on water and on carbon monoxide surfaces. On water, the formation of HOCO is facile, and the conversion to CO2 will be dictated by the hydrogen atom abundance as a main driver. It might be important, therefore, to include a two-step reaction pathway in astrochemical models. On CO, the formation of HOCO is not entirely straightforward and can be seen as non-thermal, though only a very small amount of energy input is needed. For example, the nearby formation of OH and small leftover excess energy would already be sufficient for these purposes. Still, the conversion of HOCO to CO2 might need to be treated separately. The authors also note that formic acid is a competing channel, which should be included in models as well with appropriate branching fractions. In the near future, with JWST observations, it may become more clear if indeed CO2 formation is more efficient on water than on CO ices. And now, a word from our sponsors. 
Our program this week is also brought to you by Titan Ox Toothpaste. Maybe your regular whitening toothpaste just isn't cutting it. Maybe you had one too many black hole burners from Starducks. Whatever the reason, Titan Ox has you covered. Their proprietary blend of two active ingredients activates only when you squeeze them out of the tube, combining the scouring power of real nano diamonds with the blinding white finish of titanium dioxide to leave you feeling clean and looking sparkling. Order directly from them today and use code ASTROCHEM40 at checkout to receive 40% off your first order, as well as free shipping and a welcome toothbrush. First-time customers only. See terms for details. Alrighty, folks, time to take a look at the percolator and see what's bubbling back up to the surface this month. And oh, would you look at that? We have a paper here by Snyder et al. Microwave Detection of Interstellar Formaldehyde, published the 31st of March, 1969, on pages 679 to 681 of volume 22 of Physical Review Letters. Now, they report using the 140-foot telescope of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, located in Green Bank, West Virginia, to detect the 111 to 110 transition of formaldehyde at 4,830 megahertz, the first detection of formaldehyde in space. The 140-foot telescope was at the time equipped with a 400-channel receiver. They used spectral resolutions between 1 and 16 kilohertz for the observations and targeted a wide variety of sources using frequency-switched observations. The 111-110 transition was detected in 15 of 26 sources. They also looked for three other transitions located close by in frequency space. However, these transitions correspond to much higher-lying energy levels, and their non-detection was not surprising. Now, many of the detections were made toward sources still notable for their use in astrochemical observations today. Sources like M17, DR21, W3OH, Sagittarius B2, and NGC6334. Interestingly, two of the sources with non-detections were planets, Jupiter and Venus, making this one of the few molecular radio astronomy searches in the literature to survey both solar system and interstellar sources simultaneously. Notably, all of the detections of formaldehyde in this paper were made in absorption, a fact the authors highlight and take as an indication that the detections are likely to originate in typical interstellar, perhaps spiral arm clouds, along the lines of sight to these regions, which were used primarily as background continuum sources rather than as a way to study the chemistry in these regions themselves. In turn, they posit, as it turns out correctly, that formaldehyde is widespread and abundant throughout the galaxy's molecular regions. As they were only able to observe a single transition of the molecule, they could not simultaneously constrain the excitation temperature and column density, and instead assume the rather standard 10 Kelvin temperature for line-of-sight clouds. Now, related, this paper appears to mark one of the earliest printings of what would become known in the community colloquially as Snyder's Rules, the guidelines for best practices in identifying new molecules in space for the first time. As part of these rules, which were laid out in detail decades later in the 2005 paper A Rigorous Attempt to Verify Interstellar Glycine by Snyder et al. and AppJ, we must be careful to have an exact frequency match between laboratory and observational measurements of transition frequencies preferably with multiple transitions measured to ensure the appropriate rotational spectral pattern is identified, 
and that there should be no other astrochemically reasonable molecule possessing a strong transition very near that same frequency such that a misidentification could occur. The authors themselves point this out, saying, We regard the close coincidence of the astronomical and laboratory rest frequencies as a strong argument in favor of the identification with formaldehyde, since we find no other molecule composed of astrophysically abundant elements that has a microwave line with a rest frequency that lies within our error bars. If some other molecule is found that has the astronomically measured rest frequency, a conclusive identification will require the detection of other microwave transitions of either molecule. As was typical of new molecular detection papers in these days, the early days, of molecular radio astronomy, the article is short and to the point. Nevertheless, the work gains substantial attention, not just within the scientific community, but within the national public news organizations as well. Indeed, an article by Victor McElhenney in the March 20th, 1969 issue of the Boston Globe heralds that formaldehyde discovery hints at space life. According to the article, which reminds the readers that formaldehyde is the smelly stuff that biology students the world over use to pickle frogs and other specimens they dissect, goes on to report that the discovery of formaldehyde in many parts of the galaxy has sparked an instant rash of astronomical jokes about a pickled universe and set telephones jangling in laboratories all over the country. Near the end of the article, and next to a nearly full-paged advertisement for this week's specials at the finest supermarkets, including, I'll note, 49-cent apple pie and Heinz pork and beans at two for 27 cents, a bargain at half the price, the author makes the remarkably prescient prediction that scientists expect that the news of formaldehyde discovery will immediately set off a hunt for more complex molecules in space. Taking a look at the chalkboard, there's only one major event on the horizon that we see right now. Registration and abstract submission is open for the 2024 Laboratory Astrophysics Workshop organized by Andrew Turner, Nigel Mason, Nicole Nuevo, Cornelia Minert, Alexandra Bergantini, Naoki Watanabe, Courtney Ennis, and Ralph Kaiser. It will be held February 19th to the 24th at the Sheraton Coconut Beach Resort in Kauai, Hawaii. A list of invited speakers is available on their website. Late registration begins November 1st. And we, of course, have a link to the conference webpage on our website, coffee.astrochem.net. And that's it for this month's Astrochem Coffee, a service of astrochemistry discussions. Once again, you can find links to all the papers and meetings from today's episode on our website, coffee.astrochem.net. Have ideas for the grab-and-go or double-shot, general thoughts or comments, you can get in touch with us at coffee at astrochem.net. Special thanks today to Julia Parati and Tanya Lamberts for writing this week's double-shots. Stay safe and keep your head in the molecular clouds. 